Good morning, Alex and friends. I'm Grace. Today is Tuesday, October 10th, 2023, and you're listening to Alex's News. On the docket this Tuesday, with balmy highs of 81.8 degrees and lows skirting 62 in Riverside, we've got a lineup of noteworthy stories. First up, President Biden steps forward voluntarily for an interview amidst the investigation into classified documents. We'll delve into the escalating violence between Israel and the Gaza Strip as the death toll rises and humanitarian crisis deepens, a situation that demands our attention and compassion. We'll also be spotlighting the fascinating journey of Hank Asher, the notorious drug smuggler who transformed into a database pioneer leaving an indelible mark as the father of data fusion. As we wind down, we'll recognize the resilience and acknowledge the contributions of our country's First Nations as Indigenous Peoples Day celebrations ripple across the United States. Keep it here on Alex's News, the home where stories matter. We start today with a significant development in the ongoing investigation into classified documents that were discovered at President Joe Biden's residence and former office. To provide more detailed analysis, we have our own Ethan Roberts with us. Ethan, could you explain the current situation? Of course, Grace. So, this story first started in November 2022, after the National Archives informed the Department of Justice prosecutor about these documents, which had classified markings. This discovery was made at the president's home and office. The White House had actually flagged these documents to the National Archives previously, even before the investigation was launched. How did President Biden react when he learned about the discovery? From all accounts, he was surprised at the find. He has, however, consistently claimed that the documents were misfiled. His spokesperson has said that Biden and his team have been cooperating with the investigation and giving the public regular updates on the situation. Ethan, could you elaborate on who's handling this investigation and how the interview process with President Biden was carried out? Absolutely, Grace. The investigation is being overseen by special counsel Robert Herr. Now, this investigation actually gained momentum through a two-day voluntary interview process with President Biden, which is a significant departure from what we saw during the Mueller investigation when former President Trump did not voluntarily participate in that process. Interestingly, Herr was appointed as a special counsel specifically for this investigation into why these documents were found in unusual locations. So, where does this investigation stand now? Well, according to ABC News, the investigation is nearing its conclusion but the final report isn't expected immediately. The timeline suggests it might wrap up by the end of the year. But with these investigations, the timing can vary widely, depending on what is discovered along the way. And there seems to have been an expansion of the investigation as well? Yes, that's correct. With about 25 classified documents found in different locations associated with the president, it led to a broadening of the scope of the probe. Now, investigators are also examining the security protocols and internal processes of the White House during the Obama era. Are there any precedents or similar cases that might give us an indication of potential consequences? Well, the Hill mentions a separate investigation into former Vice President Mike Pence concerning possible mishandling of classified documents. However, that concluded without any findings of any misconduct. It's worth noting then, that the consequences of these investigations can vastly differ. That's certainly true, Grace. 
And, at this stage, it is important to reiterate that President Biden maintains that he did nothing wrong. His legal team has been proactive in cooperating with the Justice Department, supporting the president's assertion he's not at fault. We'll await the conclusion of that investigation with interest. As always, thank you for the comprehensive analysis, Ethan. It's been my pleasure, Grace. This has been Story 1 of 4. Stay tuned for more updates shortly. Now, on to our next item. Story number two on our docket today is a detailed report on the escalating violence between Israel and the Gaza Strip. For in-depth understanding, we're turning to our expert reporter, Chloe. Chloe, this situation seems profoundly disturbing. Can you provide us an overview of the ongoing conflict? Absolutely, Grace. From the comprehensive analysis by ABC News, we understand that both Israel and the Gaza Strip are in a severe state of crises. Palestinian authorities report a death toll of 560 people, with 2,900 injured due to Israeli retaliatory attacks. The havoc in Israel is equally scary, with 900 reported deaths and over 2,300 injuries from Hamas forces. The United Nations estimates that the ongoing conflict, dating back to 2008, has resulted in around 6,400 Palestinians and 300 Israelis losing their lives. It's a heartbreaking situation, Chloe. And I see that the violence has significant effects on the civilian population there. Could you dig into that a bit? Indeed, Grace. Both sides have targeted residential areas, leading to the destruction of many homes, including refugee camps. The Associated Press provides further details, citing a high number of displaced people over 123,000. Hospitals in Gaza are overcrowded and are facing shortages of essential drugs, medical supplies, even fuel for generators. The lack of air raid sirens and bomb shelters makes it especially difficult for civilians to seek protection amid the escalating conflict. This has clearly pushed the already tough humanitarian situation in Palestine to the brink. It seems like the blockade imposed by Israel on Gaza has augmented the crisis. Is there any speculation on what these actions could potentially lead to? Absolutely, Grace. With Israel intensifying airstrikes and imposing a blockade on the Gaza Strip, essential supplies have been cut off. The death toll clearly continues to rise. Also worth highlighting is the fact that Hamas militants have threatened to execute captured Israelis in response to these attacks. Amid this, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has indicated that the strikes on Hamas have only begun, warning of more severe destruction ahead. The potential for a ground assault into Gaza seems uncertain but isn't off the table yet. Very concerning indeed. From the whole situation perspective, are there any other related factors to consider? Yes, Grace. The whole situation is complicated by the long-standing Israeli-Palestinian deadlock and the rejection of Palestinian statehood by the current hard-right government. There are significant concerns that this conflict has the potential to spread to a new front. The surprise attack by Hamas has resulted in a death toll not seen since the 1973 war. The United Nations warns that Israel's blockade could have catastrophic consequences for the people of Gaza that possibly constitute collective punishment, which is prohibited under international law. It's a grim picture, Chloe. Is there any possibility of international intervention? So far, Grace, the international community, represented by organizations like Terra de Homs, is urging all parties to respect international humanitarian law and protect civilians. However, the situation on the ground remains volatile and uncertain, with an apparent threat of the violence escalating further. Chloe, thank you for your comprehensive coverage of this pressing issue.
Story 3 on our morning podcast takes us into the world of online databases, personal information, and an intriguing individual named Hank Asher. Ethan, our specialist correspondent, is here to tell us more about how a former drug smuggler turned DIA informant went on to develop an unparalleled database. I understand this story has several unique elements? Quite right, Grace. Hank Asher's tale is quite unconventional. Believe it or not, Asher started his career in South Florida as a pilot but got entangled with drug smugglers in the early 1980s. His potential was spotted by attorney F. Lee Bailey, who, ironically, assisted Asher in becoming a DIA informant. Asher's deep knowledge of drug smuggling and his extensive contacts made him invaluable to law enforcement. That seems like a major pivot in his career. How did the DIA informant stint lead Asher into the world of personal databases? Asher had access to the early DIA computer systems while working as an informant. He had a sophisticated understanding of data processing and saw potential in collecting large amounts of personal data. He started with Florida's public records, compiling a comprehensive database including vehicle registrations, driver's licenses, and more, and later sold access to this treasure trove to police forces and corporations. So, Asher essentially commercialized personal data. Can you elaborate on how clients utilize this information? Mackenzie Funk, a journalist and author who spoke about Asher on NPR's podcast, All Things Considered, painted an interesting picture of this. Funk revealed that Asher could produce an incredibly detailed profile of a person just from their name, which was then groundbreaking. This included contact details, relationship statuses, even personal history. Corporations and law enforcement found such comprehensive data immensely valuable. That level of information retrieval must have been quite revolutionary at the time. Now we're aware that the landscape changed dramatically after 9-11. How did this event affect Asher and his database? It actually amplified the significance of Asher's work. His system, named Accurant, utilized an algorithm to identify potential terrorists. It accurately flagged five of the 9-11 hijackers. However, it also wrongly flagged over a thousand others, leading to investigations and, in some cases, deportations. That's a compelling aspect. There must be continued implications from such a sophisticated system existing? According to Funk, Asher's databases surpass what's publicly available on platforms like Facebook. He speculated that the existence of these wide-reaching databases has shaped our world, mostly because they document one's past so terribly comprehensively that it's hard to move on from it or even escape it. He argues that our world is fundamentally different because these databases exist. That's chilling to consider. Hank Asher passed away in 2013, but it's clear he left behind a powerful legacy. Absolutely. Called the father of data fusion, his databases remain accessible and continue to silently intertwine with our lives. For those interested, Funk's book, The Hank Show, offers a deeper dive into Asher's fascinating life and work. Thank you, Ethan, for shedding light on this captivating narrative. We'll remember the tale of Hank Asher, from a drug smuggler to a DIA informant, and eventually a pioneer in the world of online databases. It's a stark reminder of the extensive reach of personal data compilation and its lasting implications. For our final story today, we're focusing on the celebrations around Indigenous Peoples Day that recently took place across the United States. Chloe, our expert news reporter, is here to give us an in-depth perspective on what transpired. Chloe, could you introduce us to the current situation? 
Of course, Grace, Indigenous Peoples Day was marked with grand celebrations and events all over the United States. Cities like Phoenix, Seattle, and Minneapolis held sunrise gatherings, dances, and traditional ceremonies to honor and recognize Native American histories and cultures. It was, as many reported, a day filled with pride and great respect for the resilience of indigenous peoples. So, it sounds like Indigenous Peoples Day is replacing Columbus Day in many states. Could you tell us more about the reason behind that? Indeed, Grace. This is reflective of a shift in focus towards acknowledging the contributions of indigenous peoples. Instead of a day that has been criticized for celebrating colonialism, these states opted to create a day that raises awareness about the impact of colonialism on Native American lives and cultures, while also promoting pride and indigenous heritage. That's quite significant. Can you tell us about some specific events that took place? Absolutely. In Maine, for example, a rally was held in front of the state house. The crowd was showing their support for a vote aimed at restoring language in the state's constitution about Maine's obligations to Native American tribes. And in states like Alaska, South Dakota, and New Mexico, celebrations focused on highlighting indigenous culture and instilling a sense of pride within Native communities. It seems these celebrations sent a strong message. What could be the potential implications of these actions? Well, Grace, I think they serve to signal a shift in America's recognition and understanding of its own history. By highlighting the contributions and resilience of indigenous peoples, we're creating an environment that promotes cultural understanding and respect. This could in turn lead to more concrete actions, such as policy changes that better protect indigenous rights and uphold obligations to their communities. Definitely important considerations. Any other peculiarities or factors that appeared relevant during these celebrations? Something worth mentioning, Grace, is the showed commitment to education and awareness. Many celebrations were not just about having a good time, but also about reflecting on the problematic parts of our history, teaching young generations the truth, and instilling a sense of honor to the rich culture and history of indigenous peoples. Thanks for that insightful analysis, Chloe. It sounds like the Indigenous Peoples Day celebrations tell a story of resilience, pride, and cultural recognition, painting a hopeful picture for the future. Absolutely, Grace. This story is indeed a hopeful reminder of how we can learn from our past and work towards a more inclusive future. Well said, Chloe. And thank you for joining us today with your insightful reporting. That's all we have for now. Today's episode was made by Alexander King with GPT-4, GPT-3.5 Turbo, the 11 Labs Text-to-Speech API, and the Google Cloud Text-to-Speech API. I hope you have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow, Alex.